Ten years ago, Daniel Goleman published a book called Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ. He argues that our view of human intelligence is too narrow and that our emotions play a major part in thought, decision-making and individual success. In fact, Goleman claims that the people who often excel in life are the ones who have a high EQ, emotional intelligence. He says their relationships often flourish and they can be stars in the workplace. And he, he cites a study that's quite a few years old called the Marshmallow Test. You might have heard of it. A researcher invites a child into a room and gives her a marshmallow. And then the researcher tells the child she can eat it immediately, but he has to pop out and run an errand. And then he makes a key offer. If you wait until I come back, you can have two marshmallows. And he leaves the room. What would the child do? What would you have done as a child? Now, some children just gobble the marshmallow down immediately. Some hold out for a few minutes and then buckle. But some wait in grim determination until the researcher returns in order to get that second marshmallow. They do everything they can to stave off temptation uh, while the researcher is out of the room. And Goldman claims that the children who resist eating the marshmallow grow up to be better adjusted, more popular, more adventurous, more confident and more dependable. Who would have thought it? <laughs> Those who give in are more likely to buckle under stress and shy away from challenges. Well, what's the point? Those people who can live with uncertainty who can learn to defer gratification for the future, who can endure a challenge, are generally more resilient in life, more buoyant in the face of adversity. Now, there is something in this that applies to the Christian life, to being a follower of Jesus. More than 30 years ago, I was a member of a church youth group in a church in South London, out in the suburbs. And those days in the 1980s, they were golden days. Puffy jackets, bangles, big hairdos, and that was just the boys. <laughs> but something was happening at our youth group on a spiritual level that I haven't seen since. A group of ordinary teenagers, mostly from a working class background, heard the gospel and got hold of the Bible. And it was like it just took off. There was new life, people were becoming Christians, their siblings were becoming Christians, their parents, people were flocking in, there was growth, there was challenge. A bunch of these young teenagers from a working class background started reading Bishop Ryle's commentaries on the New Testament. Bishop Ryle was a, was a bishop in the 19th century. They started getting into this stuff, there was a power, it was as if everything just seemed so easy. It was a great phase. Looking back, I think it was a mini-revival. More than 30 years have passed. What became of those eager young converts? Well, many of them have continued strong in faith, growing closer to Jesus over the years, no matter what life has thrown at them. Others wilted under pressure and walked away from Christ, some of them within a few months or a few short years. What is it that makes the difference? Now, as I've reflected on this over time, I've noticed that the ones who carried on strong are the ones who've been able to endure hardship and disappointment by growing in prayer and 
God's word. Reading God's word and praying. Therefore, they were able to make choices to obey Jesus that cost them. They were able to cope when life went wrong, as it invariably does. They could face opposition, indifference, and sometimes the intellectual climate that is cold towards faith. Now, we might imagine that the early years of following Jesus are the the most difficult, the hardest years. But many Christians actually find the opposite is true. They find that as they go on, the later years are more difficult. Tom Wright is a professor at the University of St. Andrews. He writes this, Precisely when you learn to walk beside Jesus, you are given harder tasks, which will demand more courage, more spiritual energy. Did we suppose following Jesus was like a summer holiday? Now that's what our text is all about today. How to be a disciple when things get tough. It is not a summer holiday. We know this. Jez taught us last week from the previous chapter in Mark's Gospel. Jesus says he's going to have to take up a cross. He's going to have to die on a cross. He's going to be killed. Suffer and be killed. And on the third day rise again. And then he turns to them and says, if anyone wants to follow me, they've got to take up their cross. Lay down their life. Lay down what they can't keep to gain what they can't lose. And what we learn in chapter 9 is a continuation and a development of the same theme. Here is the main idea. The followers of Jesus spend most of their lives in the valley, not on the mountaintop. So we need strong faith, which comes from prayer and close attention to God's word. Followers of Jesus spend most of their lives in the valley, not the mountaintop. So we need strong faith, which comes from prayer and close attention to God's word. To Jesus' word. I've got a slide I hope coming up. Just two points today. Firstly, glory on the mountain. Secondly, life in the valley. Glory on the mountain. Verse 2 of chapter 9. Turn with me, please. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, every culture has its own great stories uh, about the founding of the culture, the founding of the nation, episodes from history where heroes did great things, and the character and identity of the nation was established. And for the Jewish people, that time was the exodus the time that they remembered centuries before when they were a slave people subjugated under cruel tyranny in the land of Egypt, hundreds of thousands of them living in brutal conditions and God had rescued them and led them out from the cruel reign of Pharaoh and led them out through the Red Sea on dry land and taken them through the wilderness and defeated their enemies and freed them. Thank God Almighty free at last. The founding story. And after they'd escaped from Pharaoh, they travelled through the desert to a high mountain, Mount Sinai. And they set up camp there around the base. And the greatest leader in their history, Moses, prepared to go up the mountain to meet God. Moses alone was allowed to go up and approach God. And it says in Exodus chapter 24, when Moses went up the mountain, a cloud covered it 
And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, they're all down on the ground. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up. And on that same mountain, God revealed his name, which means his essential character, who he is, his identity to Moses. We read in Exodus 34, the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And as he passed in front of Moses, he proclaimed this, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the living God. There is no other. And God revealed his truth to Moses in an extraordinary way in that encounter. He gave him what we call the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, Ten Essential Guidelines for how life is to flourish and be conducted under God's good rule. And when Moses came down the mountain from that encounter, the Bible actually says that he wasn't aware that his face shone. It was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. His face in some way reflected the glory of God's presence for a while and people were actually afraid to come near him. Now all of that story is the background to our text today. At the transfiguration, Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John, and he goes up a high mountain and there he reveals his glory. Verse 2 says he was transfigured or transformed before them. They saw Jesus as he really was. The veil of ordinariness was lifted just for a few minutes. And they caught a glimpse of the splendour of Jesus. All this time they've been spending with this handyman from Nazareth. With his rough carpenter's hands. Listening to his teaching as their rabbi. But they had no idea who they were dealing with. This is the Lord of glory, Jesus. And in verse 3, the language strains its bounds. It says his clothes became intensely white. No laundry on earth could match this. In other words, a dazzling glory shines out of Jesus, a brilliance that no human power could produce. Jesus is revealed to be the very glory of God himself. Verse 4, Two of the greatest heroes in their history appear and talk with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. Why these two? Moses is the greatest prophet, the founding father, the heroic rescuer who led them through the wilderness. And Elijah was the prophet who was said to return one day and herald the new world order when the Messiah came. So when readers who knew their Bibles read Elijah, their ears prick up. Because the Old Testament, our Old Testament, ends with these words. The last few verses of the Old Testament from the Italian prophet Malachi, also known as Malachi chapter 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come 
and strike the land with total destruction. In other words, Moses and Elijah are here endorsing Jesus. Focusing on Jesus. Whatever weight and authority that they have is now subsumed under Jesus. Because he's the one they look to as the fulfilment of all they worked for and taught and dreamed of. Now, this scene up the mountain is absolutely astonishing. And so the disciples, it says, were terrified. They're terrified. The old King James Version said they were sore afraid. Now, what do you do when you're really scared? You know, some people just go really quiet when they're scared. I'm one of those. Other people start to blabber and just blurt out the first thing that comes into their head. Are you one of those people who sometimes opens their mouth before engaging their brain? Perhaps you call yourself a verbal processor? (laughs) Well, the disciple Peter is one of them. Verse 6 admits he didn't really know what to say, but he decided to say something anyway. So what does he say? Have a look at this. Verse 5. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Okay. Now, it could be a bit hard on Peter at this point, but this isn't quite as ridiculous as it first appears. Uh, One of these great feasts and festivals in in the Jewish religion was called the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, Booths, or Huts. And this is the time when they remembered the exodus and celebrated that they'd been rescued. It was commanded in, in Leviticus 23 that they should live in a hut or a booth for seven days to celebrate the time when they were rescued from Egypt and they made temporary shelters in the wilderness. And the instructions were that the roof of the hut should be kind of made of twigs so they could see the stars. And it should be temporary. And Orthodox Jews, to this day, will do this during that feast time. So in some way, Peter, by trying to say, well, let's put up some shelters, he's trying to respond appropriately, but he really does fall short. Notice how he addresses Jesus. Rabbi? Hold on a minute. Last chapter, he's just realised that he's God's special king, the Messiah, the Christ. Now he's just downgraded him to rabbi. This isn't really the appropriate job title. It's a grave underestimate of who Jesus really is, but he doesn't know what to think. Now, verse 7 is fascinating. Whenever God appears to people in the Old Testament, he appears in a cloud. A cloud comes. Why is that? Because that a cloud enables God to manifest his glorious presence without the people being completely consumed and overwhelmed. The cl- it gives cloud cover for our benefit. Whenever God shows up, it's called a theophany, it's in a cloud, a glory cloud. And this is what happens on the mountain. And from within the cloud, a voice comes and it says, This is my son who I love. Listen to him. Now, attentive readers will remember what the voice from heaven said in chapter 1. At that point, only Jesus heard it. And he said, you are my son, whom I love, my beloved son. But on that occasion, only Jesus heard it. This time, three disciples are present. And this voice is for their benefit. Because the voice then adds an instruction, which is what? 
listen to him. They are the first people in Mark's gospel to see Jesus for who he really is. The Lord of glory. Revealed on the mountain. With the voice of God the Father himself giving his special stamp of approval. And saying he is unique and he is my beloved. You must listen to him. Now, you know, there are some moments in life when you see something that alters your perspective on reality forever. Science teachers love the moment when a child first looks down a microscope. You know, you've got the microscope there and you never looked down it before and there's this speck of dust or a wing of a moth or something down there. The child goes to the microscope. We've had this at home. And they look down and, whoa, what's under there? And they start finding all sorts of things to put under the microscope because you can see reality in a way you never saw it before. Suddenly the whole of life looks different. Have you ever looked through a telescope, a powerful telescope at the stars and just thought about how vast the universe is? Have you ever been present at the birth of a baby and heard life's first cry? You know, we, we have these moments in life that alter our perception forever. And for Peter, James and John, this was one of them. This was the one, really. Many years later, Peter wrote a letter. We have it in our Bibles. It's Second Peter. And he wrote it to some Christians who were struggling up in what we now call Turkey. And he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And what is the main point that the voice is making here? This is my son. Listen to him. Pay close attention to every word that Jesus says. So this transfiguration, this transformation is all for the disciples' benefit and therefore it's for our benefit too. That's why Peter says, we were eyewitnesses, we heard the voice and we're passing it on to you. We've got to listen to Jesus' words. Now we will see why this lesson is so important in a minute when we go back down to the valley. But first of all, we need to know that the penny didn't drop uh, immediately Thomas Kuhn has written about uh, the way science progresses and he talks about a a paradigm shift in which scientists suddenly have a breakthrough and they move into a whole new realm of science and discovery and understanding. These disciples do not have a paradigm shift straight away here where everything suddenly becomes clear. Although the cloud covering God's presence lifts, they are still very much in the fog, mentally speaking. And verses 9 to 13 make it clear As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus straight away gives them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man, which is how he describes himself, had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Now, for once, somebody in Mark's Gospel actually obeys Jesus when he tells them not to talk about it, which is a great move forward. They keep the secret, but they're preoccupied with something that he said. What does he mean? about rising from the dead. Now again, we should not assume that these disciples were the most stupid men in the world. 
They are wrestling with this claim of Jesus because of their inherited belief system. Their whole culture, the intellectual authorities of their culture, taught that there would be a future day of judgment in the end time. At which point God would judge the world and raise from the dead all the righteous people who could live forever. And at that point they would all be raised at once. So now Jesus is saying, he's going to rise from the dead. Uh, right? On his own? So how does that fit with the timeline? They're trying to put it together. They try and piece the timeline together with another theological question, again drawn from the religious and intellectual authorities of their time. Look at verse 11. So they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now remember that quote from Malachi 4 we read earlier? The Jewish thinkers had correctly seen that a prophet identified as Elijah was going to come and herald the Messiah, the special king who came to set the world to rights. So the disciples here are reasoning when this Elijah might pop up, and how Jesus is going to rise from the dead, and how it fits, all fits together. And Jesus says, well, you know, on one thing, you're absolutely right. Uh, you're right, Elijah, about Elijah coming. And he says in verse 13, he's come already. In fact, he came, and they've done whatever they wanted to. Who is this Elijah? Now, Mark, the writer, leaves this hanging. But again, if you've been paying attention... All along, you can join the dots. Someone was introduced back in chapter 1 wearing retro Elijah clothes. A garment made of camel's hair and a leather belt. You can buy this stuff in the northern quarter at the retro shops. In the wilderness, where Elijah used to hang out, eating the paleo diet, locusts and wild honey. This same prophet made the most powerful call to come back to God that the nation had seen in centuries. And then in chapter 6, what did they do to this Elijah? Pulled him into prison, kept him languishing, and eventually cut his head off after a drunken orgy. That was Elijah, John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, Elijah has come. And so he's hinting, what's happened to John the Baptist is also going to happen to me. He says it to them again in verse 12. Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? He must, just like John the Baptist. That has been God's plan all along. It's written in the scriptures that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. What does all this mean? Two things. Firstly, the glory of Jesus, you know that shining, dazzling, effulgence, shows us that he's not simply a great man, a great teacher, but he is deity himself. Moses reflected brightness, Jesus radiated it, came out of him. This glory is divine, this is a stupendous claim being made here. Jesus is revealed to be the very presence of God on earth. And the voice of God endorses him. God gives glory to Jesus. First thing. Secondly, the disciples being taken up and taken in 
and seeing it and being spoken to shows us that Jesus is not only God himself, but he is the way to approach God. The way to approach the unapproachable. Moses had begged God, let me see your glory. And God had said to him, no one can see me and live. I'll let you see the back parts of my glory. Put him in a cleft of the rock, covered it up, passed before him. He just saw a glimpse of it. But here, the disciples do see God's glory. Not only is Jesus God, the one behind the universe, we learn that he's the bridge, the way to access God. He's the God we need and the way to come into the presence of God. Glory on the mountain. Now we might want to stay up there, enjoying the vision. Maybe Peter was right. Can we just build some shelters and stay up here? So beautiful. But that's not the plan, because Jesus takes them down to the valley. And this is where we, friends, spend most of our lives. What's it like? Look at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. This is life in the valley. I'll notice three things here. Firstly, it's chaotic. It's not the beautiful scene up on the mountain. This is people arguing, fighting, falling out with each other. Disciples feel insecure. They've blown it. It's chaos. It's disorder. It's, it's conflict. People running here, there and everywhere. Secondly, it's hostile. It's hostile between the people. These are the, these religious experts, the legal experts of their culture. The disciples are intimidated by them. They don't have all the answers. And yet they're trying to fight their corner. Their culture is against them. And then the disciples have failed, haven't they? You know, they, they're left in charge. It's like the, the magician's apprentice. You know, you're in, you're in charge down there where I go up the mountain. And someone brings this boy with the demon, the demon, the possessed boy. They try and exercise it and no, nothing happens. And, and so they've failed. It's, it's shameful, embarrassing in public. And the big problem behind all of it is identified by Jesus as unbelief. Unbelief, verse 19. You unbelieving generation. There's unbelief in the, the legal experts after all they've seen. All the miracles, all the wonders, all the teaching Jesus has given. They're still picking a fight with him, trying to fall out with him. He doesn't fit their criteria for what they think the Messiah, God's King, will look like. There's unbelief in the disciples. They, they haven't got enough faith to cast out this demon. And then there's the father of the boy. We'll come on to him in a minute. But he is the only person who, who, who seems to strain towards faith. And even he cries out, I, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Maybe that's you. And that's your prayer. It has been mine more than once over the years. I do believe, help me in my unbelief. 
Now there's this terrible scene with this boy and this spirit that has robbed him of speech. He can't speak. It kind of takes hold of him. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. And then it, later on it says, the, the, the man says in verse 20, this is a desperate father speaking, it has thrown him into fire or water to kill him. This is a worse case of demon possession than we've seen so far in the gospel. And again, I just want to speak about this matter of demon possession because it's something that um, many people in our culture find ridiculous and laughable. And I want to actually give you a, a, a first-hand testimony of something very similar from some friends of my parents. This book, At the Foot of the Snow, is probably one of the best five books I've ever read. A book that made me laugh out loud and cry. At the Foot of the Snows is an account by David Waters, who was a pioneer Christian worker in the tiny kingdom of Nepal in the late 1960s, an isolated mountainous kingdom. And he went and found a people group called the Khan, K-H-A-M, and, and they were living so far up in the snows at the foothill of the Himalayas. People thought they didn't really exist. And he found them and went and lived with his wife Nancy and their two sons for some years and translated the Bible into the Khan language. It's just a wonderful story. But it contains a first-hand account of a demon possession of a child. The Khan people were, had shaman. They were animists. And the shaman uh, exercised a strange power over their culture. These shaman were kind of outsiders. They lived on the fringes. But they would come in and they had sort of magic and rituals and strange things they could do. And one time, David and Nancy were there in their house and they became aware of this great commotion outside in the field. And a bunch of shaman had come and they were carrying on and banging things and chanting and dancing around. And they checked what it was. And it was a special ceremony called the call. Because in the shaman tradition, if a shaman died and his spirit did not find another person to live in, they had nine years to find a host or the, sh- the spirit would disappear forever. This was their tradition. And these shamans knew that the nine years was nearly up. So they were there carrying on and doing this ritual all night, banging drums and chanting. People in the town were there. It was kind of entertaining, a bit circus-like. And David and Nancy watched it for a while and then went to bed. Their two sons were asleep in another room. And these people were friends of my parents and told this story. And here it is. The day passed and night fell. We witnessed some pretty extraordinary things. After supper, Nancy put the boys down. And in a couple of hours, we too went off to bed. As we lay there just beginning to doze off, we suddenly heard a hideous chatter coming from the other room. We sat bolt upright in bed, our spines tingling. Who got into the boy's room? Who? How? He must have come in through the window. We grabbed our torches and rushed in to confront the intruder. When we got there, he was already gone. All we could see was Daniel, the younger boy, standing in the middle of his bed. His face was severely contorted and suddenly we realised the chatter was coming from him. Daniel, Daniel, wake up, we shouted, scared out of our wits. Wake up, you're having a nightmare. He pointed a finger behind us. Look out, he screamed. We whirled around, there was nothing there. The young boy, Daniel, was the one that the spirit had found to possess. And the story unfolds about how they prayed 
and in the day they gained peace, but at night the spirit would come back and torment the boy until in the end they were absolutely exhausted. They got out of the village, went down, travelled back to Kathmandu, they were nearly broken by it, took Daniel and called together all the Christian workers that they knew in the city. They all came and gathered for a time of intense prayer, went on for more than one day. And eventually that spirit was cast out and the boy was freed. However, the uh, epilogue of the book, Daniel writes his own account about that time and about his father. And he says, My earliest memories are of the shamanic visions I had when I was only three. And they form some of the deepest impressions I have of calm country. To this day, when I'm in some remote village, hidden from the rest of the world under a blanket of cold stars, I still feel the pull of the drum late at night, and it evokes in me some of the strongest feelings I know. It's a feeling of the wild, not in the unfettered, carefree sense of the word, but in a raw, powerful, dangerous sense. Now, you may be very sceptical about that. I can understand it. But how do you account for that kind of thing in our world? It's beyond modern Western rationality. But it exists in many cultures still, and it's very much in the world of the Bible. Christian, we need to know that demonic powers are still real, and they require deep faith and intense prayer to overcome them. This is life in the valley. What is the point of this section? It's that followers of Jesus will spend most of their lives in the valley, not on the mountaintop. So what do we need? Faith. Strong faith, which comes from prayer and close attention to Jesus' words. We see it in the story. Look at verse 29. Why couldn't they cast out the spirit? Jesus says, this kind can come out only by prayer. In other words, the disciples were trying to cast out the Spirit without praying. Isn't that interesting? They thought they'd learned enough now. They'd learned a technique. They've done this in the past. They could do it now under their own strength. Wrong! The battles of the life of faith can only be won by total dependence upon God. Not on yourself, on your track record, your gifts. This is the point of prayer. I mean, what, what do you think about prayer? Do you know, prayer seems like such a waste of time, doesn't it? Prayer, I sometimes think, is the weakest thing I can do. You're not doing anything when you pray. And you've got that action to-do list that just gets longer and longer. And the emails are building up and your boss is breathing down your neck and... You've got family responsibilities and it's all crowding in. And I haven't got time to pray. Prayer is not doing anything. It's just leaning on God in complete dependence on him. And that's what they needed to do. Because that was the place that spiritual power would come from in the valley. Faced with a harder opposition. Now if you are too busy to pray... Christian, you have a problem, but you can change now. Just like that. Because developing a prayer life is not about becoming a monk who can get up early and do three hours quiet prayer in a cell somewhere. You know you can't do that. 
most of you. Developing a prayer life is praying in your inner spirit all the time. While you're commuting, while you're changing a nappy, while you're doing your job, while a crisis comes up, while even mid-conversation. Praying, just a constant communion with God. And when we stop that, we get weaker. Prayer, and the other thing we need is close attention. Remember that voice on the mountain again. The voice of God himself. He gives us a three-word instruction. Can we remember it? Listen to him. This is what we need, because we won't be sustained by glorious experiences. We won't be sustained by visions. We will be sustained by Jesus' words. Some of you might need to hear this, because maybe you're, you're banking everything on an experience that you once had, or that you hope to have in the future, and then that will just kind of clear away your doubts and you'll be able to live for Jesus. It doesn't work like that. That's what the whole point of this passage is. We need his words, not experiences. Now, God does give experiences sometimes, wonderful ones. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest theologian of the medieval period, who wrote some of the finest works of theology that have ever been written. Aquinas himself, on one occasion, went in to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, and came out and after said to his scribe, after what I have just experienced, I will never write again. Because he'd been caught up into the glory of God's presence and he laid down his pen. He knew he couldn't do justice to God having had that one experience. But it only happened once. It won't sustain you. You need the word of God. That's why we got the Bible. That's what you need. Jesus himself said it, remember? Man, woman, shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the valley, you can't see God. And that's where most of you are now. In your life, which, as you go on walking with Jesus, may get harder. More courage is needed. More spiritual energy. You see your weakness. You see your sin. More and more and more. How can we possibly work, live like this? Jesus says, don't live on bread, but live on God's words. You need that. You can't see God. You can't see the bright radiance. You don't see those bright, shining clothes. All you have is his word to go on. Another act of dependence is to read the Bible and meditate on it. This is not rocket science, friends. Just to take God's word and take it in. And live by it. And chat about it with your friends. And learn it. And study it. Chew it over. You don't need to be an expert. Psalm 1. Blessed, happy, flourishing is the man or woman who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law they meditate day and night. And they're like a tree planted by a stream of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. In other words, the flourishing life, the strong life, where the roots go down deep into the nourishing soil and the water comes in and you bear fruit and you're a shelter for other people. You get stronger and stronger over time. You can withstand the storms. That flourishing picture of life, the blessed life, is for the one who delights in God's word. So, Christian friend, Are you reading your Bible? It's a very simple message, isn't it? 
Read your Bible and say some prayers. What about us? You know, a lot of people become Christians with great expectations. Great expectations. And often there's a honeymoon period at the start. I, ha- I had one. I was telling you about it earlier, back in those glory days of the 1980s. A honeymoon period, but then things change. We're in the valley. Life creeps up on you. And you find yourself in your heart of hearts saying, I wasn't supposed to be like this. I didn't sign up for this. This disappointing marriage. I'm not saying that about myself, by the way. (laughs) These children. This condition of singleness, which can be a great gift, but maybe it's a struggle for you. My attraction to the same sex, which if I follow Jesus, I can't explore. These money worries, this health issue, being lonely, being so limited, being a failure. I didn't sign up for this. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Some people have an ecstatic experience and they base their life on that, but it won't carry you through. You can't live on the mountain. The mountain's coming in the future, all right? The day of resurrection's coming. The day of glory is coming. We will see him face to face, the Apostle John says, and then we will be like him, radiant and glorious. Jesus shares his glory with us. You know, you too will be made glorious in the future. So can we hang on for the two marshmallows? What circumstances face you today? Think about those people in that situation. The situation of chaos and disorder and mess. You just can't see your way through life. The situation of arguments and hostility and opposition and feeling intimidated by the intellectual forces of your culture or disappointment and the feeling of failure. The one thing you really wanted to be good at and you're not. Huh. It's all there in this chapter. These things all in our text. And so we learn today that followers of Jesus Christ must spend their lives in the valley, not on the mountaintop. So we need strong faith, and that comes from prayer and getting, paying close attention to Jesus' word. Prayer and Bible. Let's pray.